if the Amazon uh, was a country, it would be the sixth largest country in the world. One Humans. third of the trees in the world are in the Amazon. 20% of the fresh flowing water in the world are in the Amazon. Over 350 ethnicities, over 180 idioms. I mean, just Amazon by numbers, you know, it's larger it's than Western Europe. And just think about what would happen if we lost that. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. And on this show, I sit down for conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, athletes, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you so much for listening. I'm incredibly glad you're here. If you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's episode yet, make sure to give it a listen. It's basically a 40-minute monologue where I share some thoughts about three important and pressing topics that have been on my mind lately, and I give several updates about what's coming at Let's Give a Damn over the next few months and year. I obviously get to talk a lot on the show, but rarely get the chance to get all of my thoughts out into the open. Anyway, check it out if you want. My guest this week is a brilliant and fantastic human, Pedro Andrade. Pedro is a Brazilian author, journalist, and TV presenter based right here in New York City. Pedro has presented on Good Morning America, Nightline, and many other shows like those. And he has his own show called Pedro Pelomondo, which is based out of Brazil, and it gets about 7.5 million weekly viewers. I had him on the show to talk, among many other topics and issues, about his brand new show on Vice called Unknown Amazon. Unknown Amazon is a sobering six-part documentary series that follows Pedro as he ventures into unknown corners of the Amazon Basin, a region vital to our planet's biodiversity, meeting groups of people and cultures who share firsthand accounts of the environmental destruction they have witnessed to their regions and the issues they face as a result of climate change. Pedro does a great job tackling massive issues like deforestation, gold mining, palm oil and soy farming, animal trafficking, over-tourism, and more, and offers incredible and sustainable solutions to these problems. In addition to the show, we talk about getting vaccinated, making a TV show during a global pandemic, being travel junkies, and so much more. This is a fantastic conversation that you won't want to miss, my friends. Before we get into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, tell me how much you love or hate the show, suggest future guests, whatever. I just love hearing from you. Okay, that being said, let's get right into my conversation with the fascinating Pedro Andrade. Let's go. I have a name that people, my last name, La Parra, La Parra, La Parra, like people yeah. just can't well, get Well, my full name is tricky here. Pedro Carneiro da Cunha de Andrade. So Carneiro da Cunha is two different names. So when people, they look at my passport, they're like, that's tough. Are those considered middle names? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but you can't separate them. Right. You know. Got it. It's... <laughs> 
I don't know. Brazilians love long names. No, I get it. I mean, I'm from yeah. like my dad's from Guatemala. I was <laughs> I grew up there. Like everybody has, you know, you have your you have your mom's maiden name and then your dad, you know, your maiden last name and then your dad's last name and most of yes, them have one or two same. middle names. So it's these long names. We're it's kind of an American western thing to not kind of include all of that, right? Cuz I don't know the, I don't know the meaning to your middle names and, you know, what makes up your long full mm-hmm. name. But we're so bad here at sort of, yeah, like including yeah. the family and the history and everything into these names. It ends up just being like Joe Smith or whatever, just very simple, never including middle name. And you go all over the world and it's, yeah, it's these yeah. long names. Oh, who's that? That was my grandmother. That was my grandfather. That's this person, that person. You're so right. And quite often it justifies, it tells you something about your history. Like, for example, I've, I've been hosting this show for CNN Brazil. I just started, and I go to communities. And one of the, the first episode is about Hasidic Jewish communities, like the ultra orthodox Jews in in Brooklyn. Um, and I know that a lot of Jewish people running away from the Holocaust went to Brazil, and they couldn't have Jewish last names, and so they changed it to a certain type of either trees or animals. And my middle name has an animal in it. Oh, and I didn't know, like I haven't done 23andMe, but I'm pretty sure somewhere, I'm not Jewish, but I'm pretty sure somewhere back there, you know, I have someone Jewish in my family. And that's because we carry these long names. And I like my the meaning of my first name. It means rock. Pedro is from Pedro. Sure. Yep. So it's something that I'm grateful for. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. We ha- we have like as I said before, we have three children, and we put a lot of time into their first name and their two middle names, and how it was a whole story. It was telling mm-hmm. a whole story, you know, Solus India May, Bell Scarlet Amor, Roman August Clark, like wow. all it's 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 versus a lot of people. If you even ask them, if I were to go on the street and ask nine out of ten people, what does even your first name mean? What does it mean? And why did your parents call you that? Mm -hmm. No idea. Well, my name is just John or Sally or Cindy or whoever, and there's no real thought. It just, it sounded nice. And that's not a bad, you can call somebody something because it sounded nice, but this is something they carry throughout their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And if they do something worthwhile in their lives, if they do something, you know, worth talking about after they live, then it outlives them and it lives with their kids and their kids' kids. And I kind of want, yeah, I kind of want that. I want that to keep living on, you know? Totally. Yeah. I think you're right. I love that. Well, either way, uh, Pedro Andrade, uh, Pedro Andrade or Andrade, uh, (laughs) all of those. So happy to have you here on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. In person. Yes. In New York City. Feels like such a treat. Uh, It is. It is a treat. uh, Even though, uh, I mean, I'll be honest. I'm not worried about you, Mm -hmm. but just like just the general feel right now, this spike in coronavirus cases uh, because of this Delta variant. It's just Mm -hmm. still. It feels like. It feels like we're going back to last year. You feel like you're taking a walk on the wild side by seeing me in person. hundred percent. I'm and fully I'm hap- vaccinated. I'm happy to do it. And so am I. <laughs> yes, and I, and I, I assume that we've been taking the proper precautions, right? I'm, I'm totally confident in us two being in this room together. But just like in general, I mean, I have friends yeah, who I, I, I have friends you. who are fully vaccinated in the last couple of weeks that have gotten COVID, right? And yes, thankfully, so the vaccine kept them from getting super sick, yep. right? 
Uh, and that's the good thing about people get vaccinated. I did a I did a 40-minute monologue last week. The podcast last week was just me sort of updating people on let's give a damn stuff. And 10 minutes of it was, why the hell aren't you vaccinated? Yeah. Like I understand, I could understand last year, mm-hmm. right? You know, when, when there was talk of vaccines and then they finally were starting to roll out and there's all this talk about ex- experimental this and experimental that. I, I understand some of, now I took it as soon as they could give it to me. Yeah, I trust me science and I think vaccines work. Vaccines have eradicated some of the biggest sicknesses and viruses in the world. But I understood some of the things, you know, six, seven months ago. Now, though, that hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated and there are no, there, yeah. there, there's no big wild stories. There's no outbreaks. There's no, why, you know, there's no magnets sticking to us, oh you God. know, no yeah. Bill Gates chips in us. I just don't understand why there's still such a tremendous, well, we won't get into some of the political, you know, yeah. side effects of the last administration. I do understand some mm-hmm. of it. I think a lot of it is just delusion and, you know, listening to the wrong people. But I'm like, man... The only way we get out of this is continuing to take proper precautions and getting vaccinated. We have to do that. Well, so- I'm really scared about, I mean, we already live in such a polarized country, such yes. a polarized world, and I'm starting to feel a certain way about unvaccinated people that I didn't feel about them last year. And I'm scared that this is going to divide us even more because you you start consciously or subconsciously resenting the selfishness that comes with choosing not to be vaccinated at this point. You know, the reason why we're going back to feeling what we're feeling, dealing with fear. Uh, I mean, Florida hospitals are packed now again, you know, and if before we could only blame the virus, now we can humanize this blame and we can blame, you know, unvaccinated people. And I'm not here to like, you know, create a villain, but this is really personal to me. Um, I, as you know, went to the Amazon in the height of the pandemic. I got 73 COVID tests. I was, uh, I quarantined for probably, I want to say like five to six weeks. I was terrified of bringing yeah. anything into these yep. isolated tribes. I mean, you can destroy an ethnicity yep. if you... Wipe them all out. Exactly. Take, make so, the wrong move. So I was so scared of giving not just COVID, but any kind of illness to those people. And I'm really proud to say that we were really careful and it took a lot from the production company, from the network, from us, from the crew. And to get here now, you know, at this point that we dreamed of getting to, and now because of people just, you know, I'm not so sure. I don't know. I'd rather not believe in science. I'd rather, you know, this is all fake news. I'm going to wait it out. Uh, it, It becomes personal, and I hate that it becomes personal. But for me, I'm just like, get with the program. It's not about you. It's about us. That's it. So it, there's a very distorted uh, there's a very distorted idea of freedom in this country, right? Just last night or the night before on Chris Cuomo, he had this restaurant tour from Huntington Beach. I watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that silly, silly interview yeah. where he thought he won and he he embarrassed the hell out of himself. But he keeps saying this is not anti-vaccine, it's pro-freedom. We have a very fucked up idea of freedom in this country. Not mm-hmm. everybody. But those people that are screaming freedom don't, you know, now all of a sudden they're about my body, my choice, right? 
uh, different discussion for a different day. But that's not freedom. Mm-hmm. True freedom is me making the best decision, yes, for myself, but also those around me. You, Mr. Restaurateur from Huntington Beach, California, don't live on an island. If you lived on an island all by yourself, do whatever the hell you want. But you don't have the freedom to kill me or my my kids who can't get vaccinated yet. Hopefully, mm-hmm. we're six, eight weeks away from my kids being able to get vaccinated. But you don't get to do that. You don't have the freedom to walk around spreading disease to me, especially when there is a miracle, like truly a miracle, mm-hmm that has been created fast-tracked, faster than ever in the history of mankind. We created multiple vaccines that can truly lessen your chance of getting sick and almost eradicating your chance of dying from this thing. Like- And this illusion that this is, oh, it was too fast. I mean, MERS and SARS have existed in Southeast Asia for a decade. We've been researching. We've never had this much communication uh, between countries. We never had this much investment. We never had this much on the line. So uh, it's just plain ignorance at this point. You, you're choosing not to believe science. And I'm sorry, uh, yeah. I have no sympathy for that. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard uh, in this whole idea of it being an experimental drug. It's like, okay, you eat at McDonald's. <laughs> you put soaps and lotions on your body with ingredients you can't even pronounce. Yeah. You uh, take so many medicines. You take Harper Med. You take all these things, right? That are that have things you don't even know. You don't understand how they work as medicines or as food. You don't understand why they put this and this together to make this kind of food. You don't understand any of it. You just trust it. We sat on these chairs without thinking twice whether they would hold us up or not, right? We trust those that have gone before that know what the hell they're doing. To so it's just that's another. In, but but really quick, I think it's yeah. more than this. Like it's not just what you choose to do to yourself. You have to buckle up. You yeah. can't smoke in a plane. Yep. You know there are things you you have to get with the program. Yep. And like you saw what Emmanuel Macron is doing in France and now in Italy and probably in Spain. You know they're like if you don't want to get the vaccine, you have to live with your choices. And so you're not going to be able to travel, go to sports events, yeah. and go to restaurants and expose the rest of the world yeah. because of your choices. And I kind of believe that's correct. Yeah. No, I I 100% believe that's correct because, again, you you do have autonomy. You can choose to not take it. But, again, you can't choose to give it to others. And to prevent you from doing that, you can't go out in public and spread it around. There's so many companies here in the U.S. that are getting with that program, too. They're saying, you know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and Mm -hmm. uh, Shake Shack just announced they're not employees and customers. So you can't even come into a Shake Shack at some point without – proving that you're vaccinated. Yeah. No, that's not tyranny. That is literally trying to save lives. Yeah. They're not saying you can't buy food and do all these things. Like there's they're not forcing you to do anything. They're just saying you can't go around and spread it to others. So I, I I'm not very hopeful that the United States of America is going to get with the program, but it is very it's very disheartening that we have hundreds of millions of vaccines sitting on shelves and in refrigerators and there are hundreds of millions of billions of people around the world that need them and and less than 1% of Africa has been vaccinated. I'm from Brazil. It's, it's 15% of Brazil has been vaccinated. People yeah. are desperate for these vaccines. They would they would give an arm and a leg for it. Yeah. Because they, they truly want to be alive and they trust the science. Um, well, we'll see what's in these next few weeks. My kids are going back to school. Uh, de Blasio, for all of his 
many <laughs> failings. Um, can't wait till he's gone. You know, he did just announce that all city workers, including teachers, have to be. Because I called, we called the school a couple weeks ago. And we're like, are you requiring vaccinations? And they're like, we can't legally, which I think is so stupid. Um, and now, now it is. Now it is. Man- yeah. You either have to take a, which I think it's still not enough, a weekly negative COVID test. How about daily? Like, how yeah, about yeah. <laughs> daily you come in? Because a lot can happen in a week. You can go a lot of places oh, yeah. and mix with a lot of people in a week. But neither here nor there right now. But you have to get vaccinated or you have to get a negative. So it's, it's and everybody has to be masked. So, but it's still scary, man. Three kids sending them to school. They can't get vaccinated yet. It's, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get out of this. Yes. Yeah, I hope so. I, I do. I, I am hopeful. Here's what I'm hopeful of. I'm not hopeful of the America, this American freedom spirit that we just talked about. And I want to move on. We have a lot to talk about, but I am, I do know that civilizations have overcome much oh. more than this. Yeah. And we will get past this and there will be, you know, a new sort of like thriving economy and society after this. I yeah. just hate that so many are choosing sickness and death and people are saying, oh, they're looking at the, the death rates. Not about the death rates. Nobody's talking about long COVID. I have friends that are still, they got COVID yeah. way back at the beginning. They're still suffering from it and will for in the long term, their health, they can't breathe right. They're getting all these different side effects. COVID messes up your body. Some people get away scot-free and they recover fully, but a lot of people aren't. So we're not even counting the health yeah. trauma that's going to be, that is, this is causing and will cause. Well, the side effects of not getting the vaccine and actually getting COVID. Yeah. Because <laughs> it will linger as well. That's actually jumping into a much more unknown totally. area than what the side effects of, vac- of a vaccine a hundred percent. I mean, again, there are side effects. I had, I had one friend that she said, I don't know, like we got vaccinated, but you know, my, you know, this person that's close to us, I don't want to name it in case, yeah. in case they're listening, but this person that's close to us had negative side effects. And I'm like, that is not a reason not to get it. Yeah. Certainly you should check with your doctor. If you have, you know, pre, you know, preconditions or different things in your body going on for sure. Meet with him, see if this is the best thing. But 99 point whatever percent of people, that's not a, that's not a problem. It's not mm-hmm. a deal breaker for them. You're healthy. You can take the vaccine. Go do it, you know? Yes. So we will get out of this. I'm, <laughs> I'm very hopeful. So you, we live in, you live in New York. We live in New York. You've been here a lot longer than I have. Did you stay here throughout the pandemic or did you leave? Um, or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. Um, I used to host a political show for South America. It was one of the uh, most watched TV shows in Brazil. Uh, and basically, we would talk about everything from the foreign policy of the Gaza Strip to the elections in India, from uh, political turmoil in the United States to the economy in France. And so when the pandemic hit, obviously, that's what we covered. So I had to be here uh, covering 850 deaths a day. Insane. You know, it was a ghost town. But at a certain point, um, my show, Unknown Amazon, was greenlit, uh, Vice, uh was really skeptical. They were like, are you sure in the middle of a global pandemic, you're going to go to these super isolated tribes? But to my luck, uh, Vice is that network that goes places where other networks don't go to and talks to people uh, that other journalists won't talk to. So I said, yep, uh, I'm willing to take the risk. And it was a game changer for me professionally, but mostly 
personally. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, it made the pandemic go by a little faster, I think, because I went through those six months of covering when things were really horrific, and then I left. Yeah. Um, and I was gone for... I, w I went back and forth three times, one of them because we had to be evacuated because we were caught in a really dangerous uh, situation. Um, but yeah, I was just so busy and so far away from everything um, that I think it made the pandemic go by a little faster. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to, you know, steer this conversation so that we climax talking about your show, right? Which mm -hmm. I, I watched a couple episodes that your team sent me and really, really fantastic stuff. I hope everybody leaves this to go watch, at the very least, the what I think is the free episode that's on Vice TV, right? Mm -hmm. But I hope yes. they subscribe and, and watch the others. I think it's really important stuff. But let's get some context for... Yeah, absolutely. ...who you are, where you've come from, your family, your upbringing, because all of that is... It's my it's my favorite part of these conversations because I, we usually get these really interesting glimpses into why you're doing the stuff that you're doing yeah. today. Like, what are the things that made you into who you are today? So, yeah. born in Rio. Born and raised in Rio. Yep. Um, ever since I can remember, I've always wanted to travel. I vividly remember sitting on my grandmother's lap and she would ask, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always said, I want to travel. She's like, that's not a job. I was like, well, then I'll be a truck driver, a flight attendant, uh, an astronaut. Just, you know, take me somewhere. It's so crazy because now I have a lot of friends that are having kids and I see that the toys that they play with say a lot about who they already are. You're yeah. a father, you know that yep. better than I do. But then I started trying to remember what were the toys I used to play with. And it's really aligned with the man I've become. Like I used to love to play with like little indigenous like toys and farms and animals, even though I'm not um, obsessed with wildlife. I've always been obsessed with going places that felt far. And I remember asking my dad, how long would it take for me to go from here, to drive from here to the Amazon? And he's like, oh my God, days. And little did he know it's a lot more than days. So basically I lived my entire life uh, looking for an opportunity to travel the world. And then I went to journalism school, uh, ended up moving to New York, and started hosting the most watched travel show in uh, Latin America. So I had five seasons of the show. I went to 65 different countries, going to places, going through irreversible transformations. And ironically enough, just now I fulfilled the dream of going to the Amazon. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> many, many years later. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like you know, the universe, had, uh, I kind of feel like it wouldn't have been the same experience if I hadn't experienced everything before. Oh, and, for sure. Because yeah. now you've, yeah, you've literally traveled, you know, to a, a third of the countries in the world, which is a lot more than most people will ever do, right? Yeah. It's 65 countries is, you know, is 60 three or four more than most people ever get to, right? Yeah. They usually, you know, they might branch out from their own home country. A lot of people never, ever do that. So now you can, yeah, kind of coming back home, mm -hmm. you're probably seeing the Amazon, your own home country, uh, in a way different way than you would have had you visited it as a oh, kid or sure. as a teenager, right? Yeah. The, the appreciation is probably much, much deeper. Yeah, and, and it's more than just the Amazon or 
Iran or Myanmar, like I think uh, after years of doing this, I realized that I'm really passionate about people. I feel like some hosts, journalists, some people love sports, some people love entertainment, yeah. some people love wildlife, and I just love humanizing headlines. And that's what I've always been drawn to yep. ever since I was a little kid. You know, once again, I feel like I'm like the man I've become is really cohesive with the child I used to be. And it's great that I've been able to turn this into a career. Yeah. Very, very lucky. Very, I mean, not a lot of people get to do what you do and what I'm, mm -hmm. you know, trying to do more of, you know, we're both storytellers in different ways. Um, and I'm, I've, so I've visited about half the countries mm -hmm. you have, which is still, again, a lot, a lot. I've been to 30 yes. plus countries, a lot more than most people. And I have a bucket list of getting to most, if not all the countries by the time I die. And I'm trying to, I mean, I'm steering my career in that direction so that, in a few years, because I've traveled a lot growing up, and then got married, had a family. Not an excuse to stop traveling, but just career oh, stuff. A little bit, yeah. Career <laughs> stuff changed a lot. And I think, you know, now my, my children are six, uh, eight, and nine, almost seven, eight, and nine. And at some point, it'll be a lot easier to mm -hmm. just, you know, leave them doing the things that teenagers or young adults do, right? And just yeah. and, and take off again. Well, but tra uh, traveling, though, is... And I'm not trying to preach here, but my concept of traveling has changed tremendously. You know, traveling is a lot more than going from point A to point B. 100%. Like I'm hosting the show, and once again, I dive deep into different communities. And just to spend a week uh, deep inside the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn, that's traveling. That's yep. traveling a lot yep. farther than going to, I don't know, uh, Amsterdam or Copenhagen, maybe to me, yep. uh, you can travel, you know, ha like going across the street and actually listening to the guy that's, you know, making your egg sandwich and like hearing his stories. Uh, and all the shows that I've committed to, uh, I always wanted people to travel vicariously through that program. I didn't want that show to come attached to uh, the need to buy a ticket. You know, I didn't want people to, oh my gosh, I have to go to this place. I have to eat in this restaurant. No, I wanted people to fall in love with the art of listening and with the art of exchange, with the art of doing what we're doing. And when I say the art of, it sounds a little pretentious because it just really changed my life to understand that it was a gift to me to give other people's voices a chance to take it all in, you know, to hear more than I'm talking. Um, and that's something that I try to apply here in New York and my home and my family and on my shows, you know, no matter where I am. I love that idea of, yes, I think, I think more people should get out of their context in travel, right? I want everybody to experience that, but they can, this idea that they can experience it right in their own backyard right yeah. now we obviously live in this amazing place where the world has literally come to True. us right so it's a little different than let's say someone living in paducah kentucky or yeah. lima ohio or whatever right but but still i think everybody can do that even if your neighbor is the same color skin as you like there's always those mm -hmm. stories that yeah. you can pull out of them in different contexts i actually i just started planning it's not gonna take a lot of planning, but I'm going to uh, go from the 
I'm just going to walk the tip of Manhattan all the way down to the bottom. You know, it'll take a full day. Mm -hmm. It's like 13 miles or whatever. But I'm going to, you know, stop along the way. I'm going to strategically go all the way down because I really want to. I've always, we've moved, I alluded to it earlier, but grew up traveling all over the place. Uh, moved to Guatemala when I was a kid, spent 10 years there, then started traveling the world on my own. And then even even since getting married, I said we've kind of settled down. It's been, we've lived in uh, Minnesota, Washington, Tennessee, and now here. So three and a half years in each place. Wow. And now landing in New York, hoping to never leave. That's the plan. And um, I've always been known, no matter where I go, I get to know my new home in ways that people that have been there for a long time mm -hmm. don't get to. Yes. The point of saying that is you can travel, quote unquote, right next door. For sure. And, and I live in Harlem, uh, and, and, and there are other places that I want to live in Manhattan, but we might stay in Harlem for a while, Namely, mainly because it's such a beautiful stew of yeah. cultures and people. I mean, there's just so much going on mm -hmm. right outside my doorstep. I love, like, I love, I used to listen to podcasts and different things all the time while commuting. You know what? I lived in, when, in, in less than exciting Nashville or whatever, you know, hop in the car yeah. or whatever. Here, 95% of the time, I don't feel the need to put anything in because mm -hmm. there's so much going on around me. I don't want to miss the screams, the yells, the people talking, yeah. the, com the eavesdropping that I get to do in little conversations as I pass by. That is so exhilarating, so exciting to me. Um, yeah, my favorite place in the city is the subway. Uh, I wrote a book about New York, and uh, a lot of people ask me, where should I go? What should I do? And yeah, there are fascinating things to do here. But the subway is just this magical place in which a Cuban drag queen can sit next to, you know, this Muslim Saudi Arabian woman, and there's this harmony and somehow things work, and people are civil, and the homeless guy who doesn't have anywhere to sleep and sleeping there is next to, I don't know, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, you know? literally, it, yeah, it, it could it, be it, that mix. And, and I'm just fascinated by it. I could, I could spend hours, and, and I sort of like look at people and I try to imagine what their story is. Uh, it makes, I guess, my commute faster and more entertaining. So, yeah, New York is just... I think the best place on earth, and, and I've been around. <laughs> yeah, right? So so you can say that intelligently. I can say that intelligently, having visited some of the most amazing cities in the world. Mm -hmm. I've been coming to New York since I was a kid, and over the last few years, coming six, seven, eight times a year when I didn't live here. Any excuse I can make. And thank God I have this amazing partner of mine that, you know, she's just so amazing. And any excuse that I, uh, you know made up to get to New York, she would go along with it. And she's just so, so great. Like, oh, I've got to go interview these people, right? And I would make up a trip, a reason to go to New York. I truly think this is the most remarkable place on planet Earth. Well, I, I usually say that New York lived in me way before I yes. lived in New York. You know, I was that weird kid that liked uh, New York State of Mind by Billy Joel. I used to watch Woody Allen movies and like I had the Empire State, I, the architecture in New York. I, I'm not an architect, but I always loved the Chrysler Building and the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, so by the time I got here, it felt so fascinating, but also so familiar um, in a weird way. 
And yeah, I, I, I think like everyone else, I have this, I don't want to say love and hate relationship with New York, but you know, after a while, I'm like, I need to get away. But the second you get away, I miss New York. Yeah. And uh, it's great. I think both feelings are worthy. Yeah, the tension. I mean, I, I, I already feel it with three kids where I simultaneously feel like I'll never leave here. This is the one city in the U.S. that would keep me here because I want to leave the U.S. I've yeah. Ever since moving back when I was 21 back here, I wanted to leave, like literally. <laughs> and I've sought every excuse to get out. And this is the city that's going to keep me here, yeah. I think. This is the one. But, but feeling that tension of like, oh, this is really hard, though. Yeah. Like, we're, we're already thinking about our next apartment and like, how can we make life as harmonious mm -hmm. and as simple as possible so that we can be here for the long haul? Because you yeah. try to complicate it. You try to like, and it, it can get unbearable to live here. It's really, really, really hard in a lot of different ways. So we're already thinking about like when it comes to schools and apartments, like we moved into a four-story walk-up in Harlem amazing little place. We got it at a great deal, all things considered in New York. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking, yeah, if we want to stay here long term, we, you know, do we want a building that's like lower to the ground or an elevator? Because it's just tough. I go, you know, we go up that thing eight, 10, 12 times a day, right? Forced with three kids wow. and hauling groceries. And yeah. when we first moved in, you know, that haul of like ordering furniture and then having to bring it up because they only left it in the lobby. Like I hauled four air conditioners up. Oh my God. And then Three of them weren't, we couldn't put them in the window because they told us after we moved in that we had to have bars in all the windows because the kids. So we had to return. So I had to bring three of those <laughs> air conditioners down. Uh, they got stolen out of the lobby, by the way, and I lost $1,000 worth of air conditioners. Different story for a different day again. And then had to order three more, had to haul those back up. And like our new couch, haul that up. Uh, our new like pantry unit, haul that up. So it's like, okay. That's, first of all, it's a first world problem. We're living way better than most of the people in the world. I'm so grateful. But also, if we want to be in New York for 40 years. Oh, and it's expensive what? and it's competitive and it's yep. uh, too cold in the winter, too hot in the summer. Um, I mean, I lived for six years in a studio with no bathroom. The bathroom was in the hallway. Oh, and like, um, I used to bartend in some of the filthiest bars in the city. Uh, but in a weird way, I fell in love with a bunch of different New Yorks. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm far from being Michael Bloomberg and having the luxury that a lot of the billionaires in the city have, nor I want that life. Agreed. But um, now I have more access and I know I'm, I'm older. I hope I'm a little bit wiser than I was when I moved here. Um, and I love the nice, fancy dinners, but I miss a lot of the... Uh, I don't know, the greedy stuff, the the rough, the tough New York. Um, and I'm not also king of nostalgia saying, oh, the good old days are right. back then. Right. New York was much better. It was. It, there were things that were really charming and, and amazing. However, it came with less safety, with uh, a dirtier city. Yeah. So sort of like learning how to fall in love with what's good here, uh, depending on what decade you live in New York. Sure. Just embracing the present and embracing where you're living at right now. Yeah, I love that. You've been here for quite some time. 21 years. 21 years. Uh, I actually, I don't even, I'm horrible with math, but I got here in 1999. Um, right, yeah, 21, 22 years. Yeah, right before 9-11. I was a volunteer for five days uh, down there. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, it was... It was uh, a game changer for 
the world, but definitely a game changer for me. Um, and my family kept asking me to go back to Brazil, rightfully so. And I was like, I'm even more in love with the yeah. city now. And yeah. I think a lot of people felt that. Yep. Um, and it was never even a possibility. Like, there was never a possibility of me leaving in these 21, 22 years. You know, I, I'm able to go elsewhere for a job. Uh, I hosted a morning show for uh, Fusion, which was a channel by ABC yep. years ago in Miami. And I had to wake up 2.30 a.m. every single day, Monday to Friday, and I lived in Miami for almost two years. Um, I fell in love with Miami, but my heart is here, and it might happen again. I might have a job in L.A. or a job in London, but I don't think I'm willing to give up you know, this place. It, it really is a part of me, and I uh, not so humbly want to believe I'm also a part of New York. Yeah, yeah. When when nine eleven happened, so my my now wife, she was ten years old at that point, ten eleven years yeah. old. That's that's the event that made her, like at that point, she had never been to New York. Mm-hmm. Fascinated by New York, like many people, but she saw she's watching on TV the towers coming down and the the, the resiliency and the response and everything, and it was at that point that she she had no idea. She lived in Florida at the time. No idea how or when or where. But I just found out just recently that that was the moment where she was like, I'm going to live in New York someday. Like, those people are fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, those are the people. Well, New Yorkers really are able to uh, turn a tragedy into an opportunity, you know? Uh, it's one of the most ex- expensive real estates in the city now, right where yep. 9-11 happened. Uh, where the World Trade Center was, uh, Sandy destroyed so many neighborhoods. Like, we've improved the city. And I hope when it comes to the pandemic, something similar, like a similar phenomenon will happen. You know, the subway is going to be cleaner, and I think we'll learn lessons from a really horrific time. I promise we're getting to your show. No, no, no. I promise. <laughs> I'm loving it. So I wanna, Take your time. So, it's your show. Yeah, <laughs> it is, but you're my esteemed guest. So you talked about these different New Yorks. I want to bring up Anthony Bourdain mm-hmm. for a couple different reasons. One is these different New Yorks you just talked about. I just finished, you know, sort of to commemorate the third anniversary of his passing. May he rest in peace. I uh, read Kitchen Confidential mm-hmm. just recently. What a book. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so crass. It's so harsh. But it's, first of all, it just made me fall in love with his writing again. Like, I, yeah. I don't know if we'll ever fully grasp. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. that's a big statement, but it's really hard to fully grasp how big of a human he mm-hmm. was and the tremendous loss, mm-hmm. right? Like he was such a big personality. I mean, he just grinded for 41 years before ever getting noticed. Mm-hmm. Like he just, all these stories he's telling in the book, you'd think that he was doing it for on a TV show or for because people were watching him. No, nobody gave a shit about Bourdain for decades yep. of him working. And just this idea of these different New Yorks, like this, there's just nowhere, no other chef on the planet could have written a book like that because it happened in New York. Yep. It happened in these different New Yorks that you're talking about, these different ones that you, you, you encounter a completely different New York, you know, downtown mm-hmm. versus midtown versus Upper East Side, Upper West Side, you know, all over the place. You, it's just so vastly different. Has Anthony Bourdain, but also mm-hmm. he was this incredible, he kind of happened upon becoming one of, he, he happened upon 
revolutionizing how, like the kind of TV you do right now is mm-hmm. in part because of Anthony Bourdain. For he, sure. There was no, there were no shows like that mm-hmm. before he started doing it. For and sure. then people were like, oh shit, like you can put a camera in front of these storytellers mm-hmm. that are really good and they can start, and then people can vicariously and in a, in a real tangible way, get their fill of global travel and culture and food through a TV screen, mm-hmm. which I don't think existed. It might have existed yeah. in different ways, but he made that. So talk about Bourdain for a minute, if you have something yeah, to talk about. Like how did he influence you I mean, and the work that you're doing? Bourdain is a gigantic reference for me. I've always been obsessed with his writing. Uh, I think Parts Unknown is one of the best things on TV in the past many decades. Um, However, I got to be honest. I think we have to be careful not to, um, like other geniuses that we've encountered, like let's say Amy Winehouse or Kurt Cobain. When we lose these people, a lot of times if they were alive, I think they couldn't even... feel the the shoes of their you know personas like he's just become this massive thing rightfully so deserves every bit of praise i think he was absolutely phenomenal um but i also understand that what made him phenomenal was how real he was and how normal he was and how human he was and how generous let's give a damn how much he gave a damn yeah you know um so i love exercising, you know, looking at Bourdain like a person, like a friend, and not like Mother Teresa, this revolutionary TV persona that redefined entertainment. He probably was all of those things, but I think in a way subconsciously, you know, he was someone who... He wasn't trying to at all. Yes, yes. And he, um, what we were talking about earlier, the, uh, the power of you know, giving voice to the voiceless and sort of like listening more than talking um, on my shows. And I'm in no way, shape or form trying to compare myself to Bourdain. But I always say the show isn't supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about these people that so generously open their doors, their lives, their hearts. Um, And every time I sit with an editor or I talk to, uh, I don't know, I discuss with the next uh, TV exec or about what the shows I want to host are, I always say I want to host shows that um, tell other people's stories. And once again, I'm not Mother Teresa. I don't think Bourdain was Mother Teresa either. But as much as he's a reference, I know that I could never uh, fulfill this vacuum that he left. And I think one of the things that I really look up to him is he was authentic and he wasn't trying to be anyone else. And um, I think we're witnessing a lot of people trying to be Bourdain. Yep. And I don't want to criticize them, you know, but, you know, all the food-centric travelogues and um, I'm not a chef, so I don't know how to cook anything. So I'm not just like washing my hands from it. I want him to, I think he will forever be someone I'll admire he is for he will be forever someone that has impacted a lot of my choices in life. I think the way he viewed the world and his hunger for different cultures and for storytelling is something that I've always had in me as well. Uh, but once again, the thing I love most about him is just how I believe he's one of us. You know, he's one of them. Very much so. You know? 
Yeah, if anything, that Kitchen Confidential book, like, really, I mean, just humanizes him. Yeah. I mean, this is... And then, did you watch Roadrunner yet? That Not new, yet. new film? I mean, it was it was fantastic. The last 20 minutes were really hard. I mean, we mm-hmm. all of us in the theater were crying. This one girl behind me was sobbing, because it was all about, I mean, just his eventual demise. And yeah. that's what I love about... And I push this all the time on the show. I get criticized by people that want me to be this, like, squeaky clean, like, you know, husband, father, you know, perfect person. Like, I get, I get criticized at times for being too real. I'm okay with that. Like yeah. I want to be authentically yeah. me. Yeah. When I fuck up, I want people to see the fuck up because I don't and I think Bourdain that's what he embodied and he was an example of that. Like he never hid the fact that he was an addict. And he never mm-hmm. hid the fact that he did all of these debaucherous things in his life and you know the multiple, you know, spouses and relationships and the ups and the downs. Um well, journalism and enter- entertainment, I'm sorry to cut you no, off, please. but uh, it has changed so much. You know, for our parents, a good journalist or a good host, you know, was sort of the proper good evening, welcome yeah. to the show. Walter Cronkite. Yes. yes very. And now, I mean, people want to see themselves in you. They want to relate to you. They want to, uh, I mean, on, on my shows, I try to sort of hold the viewer by the hand and sort of take him with me. Like, without mechanically asking, what are people asking? What, you know, uh, I think they want me to be present. They want me to feel these things. They want to know when I'm uncomfortable as fuck, you know, like getting eaten alive by mosquitoes and uh, being held hostage by 250 armed indigenous people. What does it feel like? And you can't be honest and you can't be truthful if you're trying to be squeaky clean, if you're trying to be proper, if you're trying to tell the story as the story is supposed to be told. Um, Yeah, this was a big uh, revelation in my life when I embrace the fact that, yeah, maybe I have an accent. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll stutter. Yeah, maybe uh, a word won't come to mind when I need that word to come to mind. Maybe my questions won't be as objective and sharp as they should be. Maybe my voice is not as uh, eloquent as yours is. But once I've embraced that the reason I am totally. this way is because of my history, and I'm okay with that history, the reason I feel these things is because of the person I genuinely am, and it's okay to feel these things. I think it really opened up opened up space for this authenticity we're talking about. You know, it opened up space for me to be 100% myself, and I think people today want that. I think people don't want bullshit. Yeah. They they yeah. they definitely don't. They definitely don't. At this at this so you, you talked about your accent and stuff like that. I want to talk so I uh do you think in Portuguese? Do you think mm-hmm. no or do you think in English? If I'm talking to my mom on the phone, I think in Portuguese. If I dream of my dad, I dream in Portuguese, but my life is here. Yeah. Uh, my life is in English. Even on my South American travel show. You know, I speak to someone in Ethiopia in English. Yep. So my crew is American for the most part. So, I mean, I speak Spanish. There are a lot of episodes in Ecuador on Unknown Amazon. Uh, but I've also, this whole conversation about language is really interesting to me because uh, I've discovered that of course, you need to communicate somehow. You know, there are a few places like you're in Botswana. You 
you need a translator. But for the most part, the the trust you gain from someone so does true. not revolve around idioms, does not revolve around a verbal connection. There really is a way of uh, developing this exchange without words. Uh, and I don't mean to sound, I don't mean to poeticize, you know, like, of course, if you need an answer, you need someone to speak it. But there is a parallel communication going on that is just as important. I spent, uh, I couldn't agree more. I spent uh, one of my longer stints overseas was five or six weeks in uh, in Zambia, mm-hmm. right next to Botswana. And um I experienced it more there and when I was in India as well, because, you know, when I was in, I, I, I spent time in Portugal and mm-hmm. because of my, you know, fluency in Spanish, I could, I could really quickly, I could catch on and was yeah. able to communicate, you know, when I'm watching your show, I can understand most of what you're saying when you're speaking mm-hmm. in Portuguese, but you know, in Zambia or in India, not even comparable. You don't have that privilege. And, um, it's 100% true that, and I feel Honestly, uh, and I experienced this when I was in Indonesia as well. Again, another incomparable language to the ones that I know. I feel so at home there mm-hmm. because the the me trying to struggle to speak your language not on the table. Mm-hmm. So now it's eye contact, it's facial expressions, it's yeah. hand motions, it's hugs, yeah. it's slight little bows of appreciation. It's all of those things that are really great communicators. And I think trust can even be built quicker because you're taking words out of the equation and you're only trusting sort of what's happening in the body language. And I have felt quicker bonds there Mm -hmm. than when I was in in Portugal, struggling through my, you know, back and forth Portuguese Spanish, uh, trying to make it work, right? Yeah. I mean, learning a couple of different words, like thank you and please go a long way. 100%. but I think when people realize you're doing your best to communicate, that you're interested in connecting with them, um, they will surrender nine out of ten times. Um, and once again, I mean, we're talking about really far away places and uh, places with different alphabets, but it's kind of the same uh, exercise when you walk into the subway and you can either walk into the subway in New York and sort of be like, people are coming out for me. Let me defend myself. Let me just, you know, sort of protect my space. Or you can look people in the eye and some, some of them won't smile back. Some of them will seem more generous. Uh, but it's not about what they're giving you. It's about what you're giving them. And I'm talking strictly about like this energy, this, you know, uh, this nonverbal exchange that we're talking about. So in the middle of a global pandemic, you decide (laughs) to mix it up a little bit and make a TV show that is out now Mm -hmm. as of July 13 on Vice TV. And I'll link to all that in the show notes. Um, How did the show come to fruition and why? Like, why now? Why not some show about any other thing? Why Mm -hmm. Unknown Amazon right now? Well, like I said, uh, I've always dreamed of going to the Amazon. And I think I'm not alone in this feeling. I feel like for centuries, uh, missionaries, adventurers, explorers, scientists, doctors wanted to go to the Amazon. And uh, 
when you pay attention to the history of the Amazon, it always comes with all this mystery. It always seemed like this dangerous place, impenetrable place. And so that was always in me, the desire to go to the Amazon. Uh, throughout the years, you know, I read a lot about what's going on in the Amazon, but you read about political turmoil, you read about wildfires, you read about uh, wildlife trafficking, but I myself had no idea who were the people living in the Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Who are these people? Like, how do they survive? Um, the Amazon is such a gigantic not just space, but it's just the most relevant place on Earth right now. And it sounds like a cliche at this point, but after visiting and spending time there, it really is not. If the Amazon uh, was a country, it would be the sixth largest country in the world. One third of the trees in the world are in the Amazon. 20% of the fresh flowing water in the world are in the Amazon. Over 350 ethnicities, over 180 idioms. I mean, just Amazon by numbers. You know, it's larger it's than incredible. Western Europe. And just think about what would happen if we lost that. You know, our weather patterns would go to shit, you know, like get ready for more hurricanes, get ready for more global warming, more wildfires, not just in the Amazon, but in California, in Turkish, in Turkey, and I mean, everywhere, Australia. Um, so it just felt so relevant, so important, so vital for me to tell these stories. And I don't mean to pretend I went down there to save the planet, but I did go down there trying to find answers to questions that I wasn't finding on these articles, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and who better to ask than from the people that actually yeah. live there and die there quite often, uh, the guardians of the Amazon. I, I, I don't like this express, expression because it's sort of like, dun, 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 yes, right. the guardians of the Amazon. And they feel so far and distant from us. And that's not what I wanted to do. I just wanted them to, uh, I wanted to find what we had in common uh, while highlighting also what makes us different. Because I'd be, it would be really hypocritical of me to be sitting here in this air-conditioned room after, you know, taking an Uber here uh, to be like, we're just the same. Uh, our essence is the same, but we developed different survival skills. We uh, were affected differently, you know. So when I pitched this show, it was actually to another network. It was Greenlit, a big network. Uh, and when the pandemic hit, they said, we can't do this. Yeah, sure. Risky. It's too risky. Yep. Like the, the world is upside down. We still want the show, but we can't do this right now. At that time, we could only hope that we would have vaccines in five years. We didn't know if this freaking pandemic was going to last 10 years. Yeah. I was like, I can't just sit it out. Sit like hands, I, yeah. So uh, we pitched it to Vice and right off the bat, they were all about it. Um, and I'm really grateful. I really think it's the right home for, for the show. And I think we've been able to do things a certain way because we were there with Vice. I like that you're, you're making a point, even in the beginning, as you're describing how the show sort of evolved in saying, my goal, my primary goal was not to save the world. 
yeah. or to even tell people, act like I'm trying to save the world. That's important because a nobody no nobody can do that. I hate mm-hmm. these these things that we say and these ideas we put out that are just unattainable. Because that, I think, going back to what we talked about walking over here from the coffee shop, you know, it, it burns people out. Mm-hmm. It, it it burns people out, and or they don't even start it because feels they, too it's, big. it's too big, <laughs> yeah. right? So the the best thing that you can do, and you alluded to it a second ago, the best thing I can do, one of the things, one of the reasons I'm building this let's give a damn thing, I want to, yes, I would love if people would listen and partake and watch what's going on in let's give a damn and then go out and do stuff. That would be amazing. And that is happening. But mainly I'm trying to take away your willful ignorance. Mm -hmm. So like, like you said, you saw a gap in information, a mm-hmm. gap in data. Like you couldn't find it; it wasn't easily accessible. So, what are you gonna? You're gonna go bridge that gap, so that people can no longer say, "I didn't know that." Yeah. I didn't know that deforestation or animal trafficking or whatnot in the Amazon affects the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I didn't know that what happens in the Amazon, the sixth largest country in the world, mass land mass wise. Uh, if 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 things get fucked up there, it affects us mm-hmm. over in California and Australia. I had no idea. They watch your show, mm-hmm. you present the stories, you share the data, the information, you take them vicariously to these places, then they can't say, I didn't know anymore. Well, and also the this moment, to me, it feels like a privilege, uh, as ironic as this sounds, but this moment is pivotal. Like, it, we, there is no turning back. We're in this, uh, when I was born, 1% of the Amazon, as we know, had been destroyed. Now 20% has been destroyed, 22 maybe. If we get to 40%, we get to a point of no return. So I kind of feel like someone needs to do something, even if that something is to go down there and try to find answers and ask the right questions and um, see what that feels like. I mean, on a personal level, like I said, I only hope your kids, my hopefully my grandkids, they'll have the Amazon around, but we still have it. So I felt like I just needed to, for myself, once again, not to save the planet, for myself to sleep at night, I just had this drive to go there and see it with my own eyes. And luckily, we had a network that wanted to see the same things. Uh, and each episode is divided, like we divided the episodes by communities. We didn't know how to divide it in the beginning. Uh, and so one episode is about uh, people that depend on the river. The other episode is about uh, this really, really isolated indigenous community. The other episode is about Quilombolas, which are uh, slave descendants. Uh, it's the facts are crazy. I think it's important to say that Please the show, do. the show, it, it, like the, the connective tissue, is the Amazon, but it's become a platform to talk about much bigger issues. Um, people relate to the show because they understand that whatever happens in the Amazon is not a Brazil problem; it's a global problem. It's going to affect us. On this specific episode, the Quilombolas. Um, we're talking about slavery, we're talking about reparations, we're talking about racism. It's crazy to think that in the uh, 18th, 19th century, about 400,000 Africans were brought to America. Over 5 million were brought to Brazil. So, Oh, jeez, I didn't even know that. The way we dance, the way we eat, the way we dress, everything 
has been impacted by these people. So to all of a sudden discover this slice of Senegal or Cameroon in the middle of the largest rainforest on earth, you know, I still get chills talking about it because um, it's what I said, like, we know of far places, but distances in the Amazon, I mean, the Amazon is just a whole different ball game. You know, it's just its own thing. I remember asking my director, who's wonderful, Charlie Bingham from the UK, uh, our next shoot, how far is our next shoot? And I was like, uh, two days by boat, uh, nine hours upstream in a canoe, uh, four hours in a tiny little plane. So I'll never think a flight to Dubai is far anymore. Um, but the fact that we were, we didn't shy away from going to these places and meeting these people. Um, I'm just really proud of it. What, um, so you've talked about a couple of the issues here. I, I, I watched the episode, uh, just last night, just thinking about our conversation today, the episode, uh, about the river, yes. river hunters. Um, by the way, that scene with the black Cayman alligators, oh my God. Yeah. that, uh, how was that actually being there? Like, how, was was any of that put on, or was that like the real? No, that's, like that was the real situation. Like if you got knocked, you could have been knocked out of the boat, and if you did, um, I still can't believe I was there. Like it's weird. I was just with Gustavo Nasser, my cinematographer, the other day, and uh, once you're filming, like you have this like survival mode on, and yeah. you. It's interesting. I, I don't feel, I didn't feel that much fear, even in the most extreme situations. And you'll see later in the season, yeah. there are some really tough moments. Uh, but looking back, I'm far enough from this that situation that I'm like, I'm crazy to do this. Yeah. For those who are listening, basically, uh, this place, uh, they have a history of managing black caimans. Uh, a couple of decades ago, they apparently had about 2,000. Now they have over 250,000. It's the largest concentration of black caimans on earth. And numbers don't do it justice. So um, I've thankfully, and this is spoiler alert, I interviewed a victim after I had already shot yep. the caiman hunt. So I still would have done it, but I don't think I would have been cracking jokes like I was, respectfully, I hope. But uh, they hunt these caimans at night, and the way to find caimans is through their eye shine when you you know have a flashlight. Um, and when you hear that there are thousands of them, you think it's scary. But when you're there, you're in a canoe that is smaller than most of those Cayman. Very rickety. Like, yes. felt like it could have tipped over oh, way too easily. Easily. And you hear all these nightmare stories. Oh, a scientist came here and never went back. Uh, this teacher came here and got his leg chopped off. Like, And then I'll never forget that moment. You know, it was like, oh, there are two over here. There are two over there. And then you just get to this place. It was like their the home. River. It was like where they were all just like sitting and sleeping. It's like the Super Bowl of... Yeah. Hundreds of eyes. Hun thousands, yeah. thousands. And then you realize that there is no going back and you're actually bringing one of those into the boat with these, like, no guns, no infrastructure. Yeah, alive, no, too. Not alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And then the next day I interviewed this guy and I discovered that most of the victims, actually they don't fall in the water. The caimans jump on the boat. And drag them in. Yes. So, yeah, my mother wasn't very happy when she watched that episode, but I, I love that scene uh, I th- because I think the editors did an amazing job in like showcasing exactly how that felt. Uh, it, it, they didn't, you know, they weren't too heavy. And the soundtrack, like you, you kind of feel like you're in the boat with me, I believe. So yeah, it's true. I think we achieved our goal. Fantastic. I mean, so some of the issues that, so one of my biggest, the things that I care about is the climate for a lot of obvious reasons. But the way that I think about it is, yes, I could dedicate my life to, you know, trying to end human trafficking or, you know, our super fucked up incarceration system or, mm-hmm. you know, trying to defund the police. I could do all these things, right? Or And I do little pieces of them, but I could dedicate my life. But the only big issue that I'm drawn to and like to dedicate, you know, most if not all of my work toward, and it's not all because I do a lot of different things in this space, but in terms of like my family and I, is the climate. Mm-hmm. And the thinking is very simple. If, 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 if we go beyond the point of no return with our climate, none of these other issues matter because we live in an unlivable environment. Yeah. And we all die off and... And, and we're, I know that a lot of this, you know, there's a lot of these cycles that happen all throughout history. We've been around for, you know, this planet's been around for, you know, billions of years, right? This hunk of earth that we're on. So, but I also know that one of the people keep comparing it to like other cycles that the earth has gone through in decades past. Those don't apply in my mind anymore because we have created technology and greedy capitalism mm-hmm. has created tons of things and products and companies that are just trashing the earth at an exponentially faster rate. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, when you were, it was 1% of the Amazon when you were a kid and now it's 22%. Well, I would guess that maybe you have those numbers I would say most of that 22% has happened in the last decade. Yeah, for it, sure. It was very slow when you were growing up. And in the last like 10, 15 years, yeah. it's exponentially sped up. So it's not 20 more years till we get to 40% or exactly. 30 more years till we get to 40%. It's five years, seven years, 10 years, because we're going to keep making these shitty products and, and we're going to put continue to put stuff into the environment and not honor the earth that we've been entrusted with. So that's why like... Figuring out how to slow well, this- life, life as we know it, like it doesn't exist without the Amazon. It's as simple as that. You know, no matter I, where you live on the planet. No, like our weather patterns. Like it's it, uh, poorly comparing. Is like if we freaking destroyed Antarctica. You know, like it, cities will be underwater. And I try not to sound professoral. I try not to sound. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be a scientist. Um, but the numbers are just so in your face. They're just so massive that it's hard not to make it obvious and simple. Like I said, one third of the trees in the world are in the Amazon. Think about for two seconds what's going to happen if we don't have, if it, that place becomes a big savanna. You know, like it's um, it's a choice, 
to not look at this issue. Um, and the truth is there are, it's a massive issue and I agree with you. I think when it's too big, people just distance themselves and they're like, ah, there's nothing I can do. Right, just get right. uh, But there are things we can do. And that's something that I have found uh, through this journey. I mean, I have found hope. I didn't come back, you know, uh, saying that's it, we're done. Uh, We've already reached the tipping point. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I get I, I get a lot of hope from younger generations. Uh, to me, it's very obvious that there is a generational gap. Older folks uh, don't want to be bothered, and I think it's once again I'm generalizing, but very selfish uh, because maybe the, the rest of their lives won't be impacted. But you see, young people. Uh, following Greta Thunberg, and that's a whole other conversation. You see people fighting for the Green New Deal. You see the United States getting back into the Paris Accord. And you see these, like, really small indigenous uh, communities. You see them also uh, giving their best. You know, this is the ones that I think we're going to have to rely on, the, the young ones. Um, there is a whole episode about wildlife, and I noticed that uh, out of those indigenous communities, uh, the young kids are the ones that adopt the the pink water dolphins, the the monkeys. The when they say adopt, they are responsible for a family of them and to protect them. So it seems like a small change, but it's sort of like the mindset. The old folks, they don't, they think they can't do anything. You know, the sure. young ones, they think, they believe that there is hope. And that's, I think, my biggest source of hope after coming back from the Amazon. Not just the young ones there, but the young ones everywhere. Watching, yeah. yeah. Your yeah, kids. Yeah, my kids. It, it's, you know, kind of coming full circle for a moment. You talked about when you were younger, what were the, you know, you see your, your friends now with kids, what kind of toys they're playing with, what do the parents put them in front of? That dictates a lot of what's forming them. And I'm so hopeful for my kids. We, we, you know, we try not to, like, it's not my job as a parent to, my job as a parent is not to force them to do stuff, tell them what to do. I spend most of, like, I see my job and my wife and I see our jobs as, like, pointing them in the direction of good things and saying, like, yo, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? Like, yeah. let's talk about that. Do you have any questions? A lot of questions, a lot of hard discussions, and then putting them in front of whether it's, you know, documentaries, TV mm -hmm. shows, um, everything that we put them in front of. We're trying to get them to think bigger, yeah. more global, and outside of themselves. Yeah. They already enjoy. I'm gonna. They're gonna watch. We're gonna put on episodes of your show. Yeah. Um, they 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 love watching. You know, somebody feed Phil with Phil Rosenthal, yeah. right? Like, you know, that's more fun and lighthearted. But you know, he's traveling the world. He's having these amazing relationships and connections with people of mm -hmm. all different shapes and sizes around food and drink, and um, they love a lot of things that I didn't even get growing up overseas when I was a kid. They love watching, you know, some anime stuff. And that causes them to wonder about, like, Japanese... Like, they want so badly to go to Japan now. We're going to take mm -hmm. a trip eventually in the next couple of years to Japan so they can see this culture that created this, you know, this amazing content. Like, mm -hmm. what's the story behind, you know, what, what, you know, when they watch these shows, uh, like... Uh, 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 gosh, I can't even remember the names now because I don't care about well, them at all. After watching the second episode, which is focused on wildlife, I guarantee they're going to want to go to the Amazon. I I'll take them. I'll rescue, <laughs> I, I rescue these uh, woolly monkeys, and it's hard not to fall in love with them. And I swim with freshwater pink dolphins. Amazing. Uh, it's really incredible. And I love the third episode as well because it's a 
we always try to ask a big question and try to find answers by going to these communities. And the big question on the third episode that just aired this week is, is it possible to profit from the Amazon and protect the Amazon at the same time. Sure. Uh, and so I hang out with illegal miners. I do a whole uh, journey into uh, palm farms. Uh, I go into sustainable uh, cocoa farms. And uh, I really am proud of the fact that we're able to talk about really serious, relevant issues. But the show is punctuated by light moments. It's not an apocalyptic show. Yeah. It's not a heavy show. There are heavy moments. Yeah. But I think same thing with what we were talking about, being truthful with our lives. It's not all good. It's not all bad. You know, you have heavy moments, but you also try to find solutions and you we really allowed lightness to come into the project. Um, Vice comes with this DNA, you know, with this edge uh, Vice is the network that infiltrates Boko Haram and the Taliban. Yep. But with this show, I really think we have broadened the audience. I think those people that are looking for those stories, they'll find it on Unknown Amazon. But I think your kids will watch it and not be traumatized. I think they will actually be inspired. I'm so glad for that. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we're, let's give a damn, and I are pitching a TV show right now and we're having all these conversations and one of the things that I'm constantly trying to remember as we're pitching it and getting closer to our goal is because I tend to I'm an Enneagram 8 uh, I don't know if you're into the Enneagram at all but I'm you know I'm this protector challenger I want to fix things I want to save people and things and ideas and I in my un, in an unhealthy state, I don't care who I mow over in the process. Like this is the right thing to do. We're getting there. Yeah. Get the fuck out of my way. Yeah. That's the. But that is not. That works. That works in sprints. Mm -hmm. That works in these times of crisis. Right. That works in little. You know. In in again in small sprints. That doesn't work overall though. Mm -hmm. That 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 can't be the whole arc of my life. Yes. It can, but I'm not going to be as successful as I could have been. I'm not going to reach as many people as I could have had I, had I told these stories, mm -hmm. presented the data, you know, put the people and ideas in front of the larger group of people to say, what do you think? Here's the reality about deforestation or gold mining or all these things. If, if I just do that without the hope... Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to lose a lot of people. Yes. And I love how you approach these big issues of, you know, animal trafficking and over-tourism and deforestation and then said, but here's the solutions, mm -hmm. you know, sustainable logging and, you know, these uh, checkpoints and rescue facilities, uh, sustainable ecotourism versus just, you know, tourists coming in and just taking over and just spending without ever, you know, you know, re-contributing to what's going on here. That ha the, the, the problem and the solutions have to go hand in hand in our storytelling is what I'm getting at. Yes, and, and let's be honest, I really believe that after the year we've endured, like, we deserve a little bit of escapism as well. You know, is it True. possible to uh, offer quality content and also offer something that is easy to digest. It, it's a fine it's line. It's yeah. a fine line. But I also think people are 
once again, people read bullshit and they want truth. And I think also people understand that when you're trying to, you know, be more sensationalist than it should be. You're trying to be too dangerous. You're trying to be too edgy. I think people, I, I don't know, they turn off the TV. Like, they, they don't trust you. So when things, you know, when shit hit the fan, when things were really dangerous, they the, the viewers will believe that it was dangerous because none of that was mechanically produced. None of it. You know, we really... Uh, when I was having fun, when I'm dancing, as you probably, as you saw in the first episode, yeah. when I'm eating, when I'm enjoying the Amazon, we wanted to include those moments as well. And when I'm scared of dying, it's there too, yeah. you know. And one doesn't have to come uh, disattached from the other. I didn't want to package a show. Uh, we were talking about Bourdain, and I agree. Like he changed our concept of travel show what a travel show should yeah. be you know i have no interest in showing you the hottest beaches in the south of france i know there are lots of people who do that and good for them and there's an audience for that but that's not the type of project that i want to be involved with right. um and once again these uh honest uh types of shows are the ones that i'm really in love with and invested in and i feel privileged to be able to share that it's amazing so it came out a couple weeks ago now. Mm -hmm. How's the response been so far? How do you feel about what you've put out into the world? It's been amazing. It really, really, really has been. And considering that, um, you know, Vice is an incredible, incredibly respected network, has so many freaking awards, um, comes with a level of credibility that few networks 100%. do. But it is a niche uh, channel, and it doesn't have the reach of like ABC or NBC. So it depends on word of mouth, and it relies on uh, people watching, falling in love with the the show and telling someone else and sharing it on their social media. But I didn't expect it to happen as quickly as it did. You know, I think the fact that they put out the first episode for free on YouTube was a really smart uh, decision because uh, we got a lot of viewers from that first episode. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's so crazy. I've been thinking about this a lot. I love that you asked this. Um, and I'm going to get to the point. Take your time. I am the kind of person who loves what I do. And the real work is when you're there. It's the pre-production, the filming, the post-production. And the world keeps going, you know, living while we're there, like drowned in that project. And this one was one that really, once again, changed me. And to me, that was the work. And then you finish, you package it, you edit, you do everything you need to do. And then a couple of months go by, and now the rest of the world gets to enjoy it or gets to watch it. And you ask how I'm feeling right now. It's, uh, it just doesn't feel real. Mm. It doesn't feel real. When I get you know messages on social media, I love the scene. I love because in a way, that was in my past. I have friends. You interviewed Matthew McConaughey the other day. Like I know a couple of actors, and they say that it's a similar... Uh, feeling with actors. They they work on a project, they live in those shoes, they become this other person, and then they go back to their lives. Yep. And all of a sudden, the world, you know, is 
I don't know, faced with this project. And you have to like bring your mindset back, in my case, back to the Amazon. Um, it's been wonderful. And I really hope uh, the more eyeballs, the better. Yeah, but right. I hope th this show wakes people up in a pleasurable way. I don't want the show to wake people up. Like I don't want people to lose sleep and say, there's nothing I can do. I want people to be like, well, maybe I should check information, more information about the products that I buy in the grocery store. Maybe I should do my part. Maybe I can help here. And to be honest, just sharing the project, the show is doing your part in a way. Uh, it will have an impact. The more people that watch the show, the more people relate to these people that live in the Amazon, the mo more people understand uh, how urgent this is, the better. Yeah, we're, we're so, there's so much going on in life and we're so distracted that we need to see something many, many times before it hits us, right? And so I, I uh, a lot of people will, a lot of people hit me up in DMs or whatever and they'll say like, oh, I loved this episode, loved this part of the conversation. And, and then I will think, okay, thank you for telling me. It's like, I don't deserve your eyeballs or your ears. Yeah. Like, so grateful. Like, genuine great gratitude that you listened to the show. But I didn't see you share it online. Uh -huh. Like, <laughs> what's that disconnect there? Like, when I, if it's a song or a, a, a show or anything that I like, I share. Yeah. I over, like, I just, I really put it on heavy <laughs> online because I'm like, I want, I enjoyed this. It moved me. Now it needs to move you. Maybe it'll move some of you. Go watch this. Go listen to this. Mm -hmm. And so there's this disconnect there. And it really is going to take for these issues of, you obviously don't just touch on climate issues in the show, but a lot of it is related to that. And, mm -hmm. and, and you've touched on the importance of the Amazon to the entire ecosystem of the world. Uh, uh, my friend and former podcast guest, uh, Robert Frank, mm -hmm. taught at Cornell for 40 years. Um, and he wrote this book called Under the Influence, and it's all about positive peer pressure and how important positive peer pressure is. And one of the things he talks about in that book is one of the studies is, you know, one person in a neighborhood getting uh, solar panels on their house. Mm -hmm. One person in the neighborhood, you know, and then they watched it over the course of 10 years, and by the end of 10 years, most people in the neighborhood had solar panels. But had that one person not put solar panels, nobody in the neighborhood would have solar panels. It takes people stepping out looking at the products. Yeah. It takes more people moving to a plant-based diet and or going all the way to mm -hmm. vegan. We, we were vegetarian for five years. We've been vegan for a year, never going back. That's a little way that my family can say, okay, I'm not, gonna, I'm not a militant vegan and saying that everybody that eats meat is wrong. I am going to point out, though, that we've fucked up the whole system. Yeah. And if you're just eating meat willy-nilly and just consuming dairy willy-nilly and not thinking about the implications of that in the world, not just on the animals but also the climate – Again, willful ignorance. So it just takes little yeah. people doing yeah. little things day in and day out, checking labels, st stop not eating certain things, eating other things. Uh, I mean, cattle and soy farming are responsible for most of the destruction in the Amazon. Yes, yes, exactly, right? So it's it's the trees, it's these, yeah. you know, kind of savannas that are happening there, which the Amazon, there should never be savannas in the Amazon. And now we've got, you know, they're projecting could be 30 to 60% savannah in, in you know in a couple decades if we don't stop what we're doing well there are about five to six million people in the amazon basin today there are over 50 million heads of cattle in the amazon today uh, and that number is just 
exponentially growing, growing, growing. Um, with soy farming, I mean, it, it is environmental genocide. And the more China consumes our soy, the more forest we need to plant more soy. So once again, I think speaking simplistically about these big issues, I think it's easier to get through to people. Like I think people understand them. You know, a lot of times you listen to, I don't know, a really elaborate TED talk and you're just like, I I don't get it. I don't understand. I enjoyed that, but I don't understand the damn thing you said. (laughs) So I try to like, uh, talk to everyone in the family, the dad who, or the mother who's a CEO of a company, but also, I don't know, the daughter, the, the nanny who's helping them. Yeah. If these people don't understand what I'm trying, my message, then I didn't do my job. That's a great way to think about it. When you're communicating, are you communicating to everybody? Yeah. That's a really, that's, that's key, I think, for getting the, because, again, to go back to the, you know, talking about Greta Thunberg and all these other, like, younger people that are standing up, if you're not communicating to the younger people, a lot of the older people still have hope, but that a lot of older people is a small number of old people. A lot of older people are also just like, fuck it, like, I'm gone, let the next generation deal with it. And it's the younger people that see it with full eyes, again, because of these amazing devices that we have, the internet, they know what's going on in the world. Past generations of young people didn't know, they could never watch a show like this about the Amazon. Mm -hmm. They can never watch a show about any of the, you know, the, the, the issues that we've talked about. And now they can't literally, Mm -hmm. they open their phone. So they go onto Netflix on their TV and boom, they can watch, they pull up vice on the browser. They can watch what you're doing immediately. What's next? What are you hopeful for? I mean, is this a, is this, is this, this run of uh, episodes, is it a one and done or can there be more seasons? Are you looking to another project right now? Um, Well, we planned uh, this project as this one six part series, but it's been so successful that we've been talking about, I mean, I would love to, you know, work on unknown North Africa, unknown Southeast Asia, unknown Eastern Europe. I mean, there are so many places I think uh, could be an amazing location for human stories, for uh, subjects that matter. Um, I'm talking to a couple of different uh, networks as well about this one project that's a passion project of mine. Um, But we'll see. Uh, I'm busy, but I'm trying to live in the moment. I'm trying to be present. I'm trying to enjoy... um, yeah, this part of the process, you know, like sharing everything that we've built and sharing all of these messages and giving a platform to giving a, a megaphone to these people that usually don't have a seat, sit at the table. So we'll see. I'm excited. I'm happy. Excited and happy. That's yeah. that's a good place to be. Let's um wrap up with this question. I, I, I pick and choose which conversations to involve. Every conversation is so different. But this last question pops up in many of the conversations because I think it's important. Mm -hmm. So the question is this. First, let me present a hypothetical scenario. Okay. Uh, The non-hypothetical part is that you're going to die eventually, and Mm -hmm. so am I. And that's, you know, this beautiful part of life that we're not here forever, so we got to make the most of it. Mm -hmm. But hopefully that's like 70, 90, 100 years off if if we can, if Elon Musk and others can figure out how to (laughs) help us live longer. Either way, I wish you a long, a long and happy life. But at the end of your life, the hypothetical part is that I 
get asked to give your eulogy. So all of your friends and people you've partnered with over the years, everybody's there. It's obviously a big room because you've touched so many people. And I've been asked to give your eulogy. And so I stand up in front of these people and I begin to speak in a few sentences. What, what am I saying as I'm eulogizing your life and work and legacy? Um, I think I want to leave this life knowing that I was someone uh, that gave a damn about people, that really cared. I think that's my passion, and I think hopefully this will be my legacy. I was, I am uh, that guy that uh, really, really, really listened, that really made you feel like you're the only person in the world during that time, uh, whether it's right here across from you, whether it's cooking with someone in a kitchen in Tefe in the Amazon River, whether it's interviewing uh, cartel leaders in Mexico or prostitutes in Tokyo. Um, what I love doing is sort of connecting on a human level and uh, without judgment, sort of like meeting, finding what we have in common. And I try to apply this in my life, with my family, with the guy who serves me coffee every morning, uh, with total strangers in the subway, and with the people I interview. So I would love to be remembered as the guy that cared, the guy that gave a damn, the guy that made you forget everything else and enjoyed that one moment. Mm. That would be a beautiful legacy. I hope, <laughs> I hope that happens for you. So Unknown Amazon on Vice TV now. Yes. You can watch the first episode for free on Vice TV or on YouTube. Just look That's it right. up. And a new episode every Tuesday at 10 p.m. There's three out right now or there's four? There's three, three out. Three out right now. Yes. So there's three more to come. The next one is intense. Intense? It gets more and more intense, yes. That's amazing. Well, I, I don't have Vice, but I'm going to get it so I can watch this. I'm and I'll, I'll be I'll be an added uh, viewer uh, and those in my household as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This was super fun to talk about travel and life and this show and these issues that you're raising. And I hope that everyone listening goes and watches this show and begins to follow your you know life and career because I think... Yeah there's a lot more to come, right? I yes, so. uh, and I, I'd love to say this Please. today. Um, this project I'm working on, the next one, um, I have a feeling it's right up your alley, and I think hopefully in a year, two years, I'll be back here to talk about this other project because just from what I know you, we speak the same language and we seek the same type of stories. It'll be... It'll be right up your alley. Well, we're neighbors now, and uh, we will definitely do a round two when that yes. comes out. Sounds good. I love it. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending time with Pedro and me today. To learn more about Pedro, his Amazon Unknown TV show, and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Also, follow Pedro on Twitter and Instagram at Pedro Andrade TV. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm so grateful for you. 
Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>